certainly is a big bun. It's a very big bun. Big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger we modestly call a single. And Wendy's single has more beef than the Whopper or Big Mac. At Wendy's, you get more beef and less bun. Hey, where's the beef? I don't think there's anybody back there. You want something better. Your Wendy's kind of beef. Another public service announcement from Real Cream. Finally, someone has reinvented the wheel. Hey, uh, you tuned into the ravings of a clown on Just Radio. <laughs> The complete solution for your home PC. Yourself to home, it's time for the ravings of a clown on just radio. Giving props to my home, cushy fry, baby. Yeah, sad of madam, hung like planet Pluto. Hard to see with the naked eye, but if I crashed into Uranus, I would stick it where the sun don't shine. How's that? How's that? Kind of like a Han Solo, baby. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. The roof, the roof, the roof is on fire. We don't need no water, let the motherfucker burn. Burn, motherfucker. Oh man, there she goes, right. Oof. Man, doesn't it just take all your uh, blues away? Just let the motherfucker burn, will ya? Let it burn! Yo, yo! Yo, yo. Alright, hey, good evening and welcome to the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio this uh, Thursday, July the 3rd. That'll do, pig. Thank you, members of the Bloodhound King. Thank you so much for stepping in the studio this afternoon. Uh, hey, it's your old pal, the Jester, coming to you from a secret location outside your universe. Don't adjust your radios. That's just the way we sound. One of these days will be as good as one of those crappy college stations. In the meantime, such a playlist, such a show, as Grandma Jester would say, featuring the likes of Buffy St. Marie, the Hollies, Elton John from Before He Sucked, we got uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. That's right. 
We got Tull, we got Steve Miller Band, we got Van Morrison, so much more. Plus, believe it or stuff it, there's room on that outrageous list for your favorite shit, and it's so easy to get us to play it. Here's what you do. Open your handy-dandy web browser, be it Mozilla Firefox or Mosaic. <laughs> You're still running, you know, Windows 3. And then navigate to www.jesterradio.com. And when you arrive, click on, uh, on the navigation bar along the top. Click on where it says request. Tell us what you want to hear. We'll get it on the air within 15 minutes or I have my left testicle surgically removed live on air without the benefit of anesthesia. How about that? That's our promise to you. And they don't do that over at K-Rock, my friends. That's a just a radio exclusive. Also, we're going to take a look at what's going on in that sick fucking world of yours. A lot of um, interesting news today. Interesting news week. Don't you think? I still call it news, not media. Because we've, you know, we, we went away from calling it the press to the news. And then we lost something there. And then we went to calling it the media. And like Chris Rock says, at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm taking 20 bucks out of my ATM, I ain't looking across over my shoulder for Tom Brokaw. I'm looking for niggas. So uh, plus uh, hanging in the Jester Radio chat room with the Jackal. Why not stop by and say hi? Six four six five zero two eighty six hundred gets you live on the air. Six four six five zero two eighty six hundred. Jot that number down. Even if you don't have something to say right now, there's something that's going to piss you off during the course of the evening. So you're going to want to keep that number handy. Time to turn our attention to the headlines from high atop Just Radio Studios in a secret location outside your universe. It's time now for the Jester Radio heckle and schmackle. All righty. That'll do, pig. Thank you very much, Bob. The plan was nothing if not audacious. We have to go down to fucking Bogota, and we have to find the guy that engineered. And you know what? The truth is that the mission came down from the president of Colombia. And his order was rescue without a drop of blood. And that's just the way they did it, man. You see? That's all you got to do. You got to set your mind to the kind of, to what your values are. And he said, we have to capture these hostages, even though some of them are there for 12 years. He didn't care. He was still trying. Even though one of them was an opposition to him, ran against him as president. That didn't matter. Even though it's easier to just gun them all down and whoever lives, you know, you let God sort them out. But he didn't do that either. This is the kind of fucking military genius that we need in our country. The plan was nothing if not audacious. A turncoat persuades rebels to bring together their most prized hostages and march them 90 miles through Colombia's wilderness. A month later, disguised commandos primed with acting lessons land in a helicopter, and trick the rebels into handing them over. The mission was to rescue three U.S. military contractors, former presidential candidate Ingrid Betancourt, and 11 others held captive 
in the Colombian jungles. Its success hinged entirely, its planner said today, on a near total breakdown of communication between the isolated guerrilla jailers and their commanders. The net result of years of intense U.S.-Colombian military cooperation that seriously weakened Latin America's last major rebel army. That and a bit of revenge. When I first got briefed, I said, this is realistic. Can this truly work? U.S. Ambassador William Brownfield told Jester Radio, and obviously the answer was yes. Wednesday's expertly choreographed rescue had its genesis in the escape last year of a Colombian who had spent time in captivity with the three Americans in Bentoncourt. But it began to gain steam only in January when Colombian intelligence determined that the hostages were being moved. According to General Freddy Padilla, Colombia's armed forces chief, the Colombia's, uh, Colombians installed U.S.-provided remote-controlled video monitoring devices, which can zoom in and out along rivers that are the only transport route through the dense jungles. U.S. and Colombian officials said U.S. surveillance planes intercepted the rebel radio and satellite phone conversations and employed foliage-penetrating imagery. So they used all this fucking high-tech cameras they mounted on trees with zoom lenses, uh, planes in the sky to capture their radio and and uh, satellite telephone conversations, uh, 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 foliage-penetrating imaging hardware. In mid-February, a Colombian patrol spotted the three Americans, Mark Gonzalez, Ken Stanzel, and Thomas House, bathing, bathing in the uh, uh, Apoporos River under guard, the first sight of the Americans since their surveillance plane crashed in 2003. For four days, we had eyes on them, Brownfield said. But a rescue operation was deemed too risky and called off. The president's order was rescue, yes, but without even a drop of blood, according to a Colombian army general directly involved in the mission, speaking on condition of anonymity, the general said a disgruntled member of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or the FARC, had agreed to spearhead the operation. This turncoat, he said, was trusted by both the rebels' high command and by the leader of the First Front, which was where they were holding the hostages. So he was acting as the go-between, and all he had to do was tell them the leader said, you know, we've got to move the prisoners. And they went, okay, take them. The FARC's communications are medieval, Padilla said. He said its command and control is so diminished that it sends important messengers, uh, messages by courier. This breakdown in the chain of command has made it easier to flip disillusioned rebels to the government side, and indeed, Padilla said more than one double agent was involved in the mission. But the turncoat was the key. He, convicted, he convinced uh, Gerardo Aguirre Ramirez, alias Cesar, the commander of this uh, first front where they were keeping the hostages, that top commanders wanted the 15 hostages moved to a rallying point. The turncoat was upset with the FARC because his own commander had stolen his house away from him. And this was his payback. U.S. spy satellites helped track the hostages on a month-long journey that began May 31st and ended with yesterday's rescue. From mid-June on, Brownfield and a team of 100 people in the U.S. Embassy who had been dedicated to securing the Americans' hostages release, worked closely with the Colombians running the operation. The truth of the matter is, we've actually come together in a way that we rarely have in the United States of America, except with longtime allies, principally NATO allies, Brownfield said. Duh. No shit. 
That's because we're not a, you know, a cooperative, peaceful member of the world community now. Now we're imperialists now. We're shunned by the fucking world. This is the way government should be working together. Several times you said the U.S. government had to make decisions at the highest level about proceeding. On Monday, President Alvaro Uribe gave the go-ahead. On Tuesday, the two Russian-made MI-17 helicopters left a military base in an Andean mountain valley. How fucking cool is this? I tell you, man, I cannot wait for the movie of the week on this. Uh, they set, setting down for a nervous night in the wilderness clearing. Aboard the helicopter, they would recover the hostages. Uh, were four Air Force crewmen in civilian disguise, seven military intelligence agents, and the guerrilla turncoat himself. Two of the agents were dressed as rebels. The rest wore white as if they were representing some kind of humanitarian mission. All had taken a week and a half, half of acting lessons. Shortly after midday on Wednesday, the helicopter touched down at the rendezvous point. One of the agents, posing as a cameraman, recorded video of the guerrillas on the ground, bound the hostages' hands uh, on the crew's instructions. Tying up the hostages was part of the plan. Uh, these are 14 trained soldiers we're dealing with, Padilla said, re referring to the captive American and 11 Colombian soldiers or police. Nobody wanted to risk them trying to overpower the crew. Once aloft, it was Cesar and his aide who were overpowered. Instead, it was just the two of them and with all the hostages and the rest of the, the rebels in the chopper were all good guys. There was no need for Plan B, which, by the way, was sending in 39 helicopters and 2,000 troops to encircle the hostage holders and trying to persuade them to give up peacefully. So they've been holding, you know, one of these guys was being held for 12 years. Peaceful is not a word they have in their vocabulary. The turncoat is now free, and he's likely to receive a sizable amount from a $100 million government reward fund. For the FARC, the rescue could not have come at a worse time. The rebels were already in disarray after losing three senior commanders back in March, one killed by government bombs, second by a turncoat bodyguard, and the third, co-founder Manuel Mariolanda, succumbing to a heart attack at 78, even before the rescue operation, but especially afterwards. There's every indication that the war is, for all intents and purposes, over, said Michael Shifter of the Inter-American Dialogue, a nonpartisan Washington think tank. Very different question is whether the FARC is prepared to acknowledge that reality. They may have a couple of holdouts for a few years, but they're, they really are completely impotent. And in the, in the history books, this will go down as one of the greatest, uh, you know, um, wartime uh, strategies ever undertaken. This simple um, thing that they've been planning on for months and months. And they employed all kinds of, you know, sophisticated uh, hardware and um, high-tech uh, shit. Um, and after all of this fucking planning, all this came together, not a single drop of blood was spilled. Even when they had the the the, the two bad guys on the helicopter, this guy Cesar and uh, the other guy, they just tied him up and they, you know, took his gun. Not a drop of blood was shed. Imagine such a thing. We could take lessons from that. The uh, three U.S. hostages rescued um, after more than five years in captivity are in good condition and undergoing the transition back to normal life. Three U.S. military contractors 
had been held by the Revolutionary Armed Forces since their drug surveillance plane went down in the jungle in February of 03. I'll tell you that they greeted me with a strong handshake and clear eyes and an incredible smile, said Major General Keith Huber, Commanding General of the U.S. Army South, which is responsible for Army operations in Latin America and the Caribbean. After a rescue operation, the men, employees of Northrop Grumman, uh, arrived in the U.S. late yesterday. They were taken to Brook Army Medical Center at San Antonio's Fort Sam Houston to undergo tests. They always have to have tests. Whenever you're a hostage, they they, they got to give you lots of tests. They want to know if they if you saw any aliens. The men's families were arriving in San Antonio throughout the day today, and Katie Lamb, uh, according to Katie Lamb, a Northrop Grumman spokeswoman, Huber said one of the men, Stan Zell, had already seen his two children and his mother and father. He said the other two men... Uh, we're going to re- reunite with their families today. The men are currently undergoing what Huber said is a reintegration process. And they're in the second phase, which typically lasts two to four days. He said the purpose is to provide a transition back to normal life after the strains of captivity. Well, you know, it's sad that we live in such a world where there's like an expertise on how to reintegrate after being a hostage. <laughs> I'm sure there's several textbooks written on the subject. Speaking of textbooks, the White House said today that dangerous detainees at Guantanamo Bay could end up walking Main Street, USA, as a result of last month's Supreme Court ruling about detainees' legal rights. Federal appeals courts, however, have indicated they have no intention of letting that happen. So here we have another one of these situations where the White House, uh, more specifically George Bush, is just lying through his fucking teeth because it has nothing to do with values or ethics because if it did, then getting it dishonestly would be hollow, would be meaningless. To win by cheating is to lose, is by definition to not win. So, But that's what these fucking people all do all the time. They say... We need to get the we need to trick the Americans into go along with our shit, which we know they're not going to go along with. How do we do that? Well, we lie to them. We tell them that this Supreme Court ruling that says detainees have rights uh, is going to end up with no less than terrorists walking the streets. A Main Street, USA. They're just going to line up and walk. They're going to have terrorist parades. They're going to have terrorist parades. After all, don't they have rights? And you know, folks, here's the deal. The Founding Fathers and any rational, calm, reasonable thinking individual would agree that human rights don't only apply <laughs> to Americans, and they don't only apply to law-abiding Americans. Human rights are, by definition, rights. You, they cannot be abridged. So the right to life, for, for example, cannot be abridged. It's morally wrong to take somebody else's life. Uh, that's the one thing that they, you can never give them back. So it's irreplaceable. You have no right to take that away from somebody else. Um, likewise, if people have other rights, like to be treated humanely, for example, you can't take that away from somebody either. That's an innate human right bestowed by the creator, uh, be it evolution or, you know, Jesus. Uh, but, um, there are people out there that you hear this every day. Oh, when they break the law, they lose their rights. When they come into the United States, 
uh, illegally. They have no rights. None, but none of this could be farther from the truth. And when you stop and think about it, I know it may piss you off that they don't lose their rights, but people just can't lose rights like that if they're innate. So uh, you, you can't give away your right to be treated humanely because you broke the law, for example. So just because you're in here in the United States, we can't just string you up on a uh, fence and, you know, gang butt fuck you and then, you know, peel flay off your skin. You still have rights. Uh, and that's uh, uh, the way it is. And by the way, even if, and the Founding Fathers made this perfectly clear, specifically Thomas Jefferson, even if it meant, as hard as this is to swallow, that... Guantanamo terrorists would end up walking Main Street USA, they still have to have rights. That's, that's the way rights work. That's the way ethics work. They're pure. They're not until I'm really pissed off and then fuck that shit. He lost his rights. The high court ruling which gave all detainees the right to petition federal judges for immediate release has intensified discussions within the Bush administration about what to do with the roughly 270 detainees held at the U.S. naval base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. I'm sure that none of us want Khalid Sheikh Mohammed walking around our neighborhoods, White House Press Secretary Donna Perino said about al-Qaeda's former third in command. They just always go right for the fucking jugular. Just strike terror into the heart. And by the way, you know what you are if your intention, if, an, if the intention of your action is to strike terror in the hearts of your enemy? You're a terrorist. So am I implying that uh, White House Press Secretary Donna Perino is a terrorist? Absolutely not. I'm saying it outright. She's a terrorist. President Bush strongly disagreed with the Supreme Court decision that foreigners held under indefinite detention at Guantanamo have the right to seek release in civilian courts, the 5-4 ruling was the third time the justices had repudiated Bush on his approach to holding the suspects outside the protections of U.S. law. The legal ramifications of the U.S. Supreme Court decision remain fuzzy, but it's unlikely that a federal uh, appeals court would order a detainee released into the United States, even if a judge finds that the government was holding the detainee improperly. A court might tell the, British, the Bush administration to let a prisoner go, but it presumably would be up to the executive branch to figure out where. Attorney General Michael Mukasey had predicted that the Supreme Court decision would unleash a torrent of court filings from detainees seeking their freedom. Judges, however, have been particularly wary of telling the executive branch what to do with the detainees. Late last month, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Court of uh, Columbia Circuit ruled that military had improperly labeled Hazaifa Parada, Chinese Muslim, an enemy combatant. And by the way, there was no mistake about it. They just want to fucking, you know, be able to waterboard him and special rendition him. The court said Parada deserved a new hearing or let him go. But the court deftly avoided saying where he should be released, an indication that the courts expect that the executive branch to wrestle with that decision. So what they'll probably do is release these people into these countries where they perform, you know, uh, extraordinary rendition, like, you know, these sort of borderline normal Western countries uh, slash, uh, you know, Muslim lunatic hideouts like um, Turkey is where they do a lot of these. 
So they'll release them, and then they'll have like local people pick them up because, you know, the local governments, you know, disappear people every day in those countries. Hey, you're listening to the Ravings of a Clown this Thursday, July the 3rd. Uh, why not join uh, Louie and Jekyll and I in the Jester Radio chat room, 646-502-8600. Give us a call. The Eagle Don't Fly, Alabama Sky. They chained him to the ground. Colorado, Lord, don't want me now. It's all right. I'll be found. Mama, stop your crying. Don't worry about me. It's going to work out fine someday. And if you give me a million-dollar bill, couldn't turn my heart away. Thank you. 
on Jest Radio and Frank Sinatra, Dion before that, and Sanctuary, there might be war in the core of Baltimore, breakdown in L.A., they bring it down in the heart of Memphis town, people look the other way, but if the lights burn cold in New York City, it's sad, but Lord, it's true, I got John and Mary, the Sanctuary, and Telegraph Avenue. Democratic Barack Obama struggled uh, today to explain how his upcoming trip to Iraq might refine but not basically alter his promise to quickly remove U.S. combat troops from the war. Uh-oh. Let me tell you something. This guy's going to be in big trouble because he's going to be the next president because that clown McCain has got a temper like a lunatic, and um, he's not presidential material. But on the other hand, this guy is green. That's why I wanted Hillary. She's been in the White House. She's seen the way that people run amok. Um, I think it's going to take, you know, Obama a, a couple of years to sort of, you know, find a way to, um, you know, implement his policy. 
Because there's going to be a lot of resistance. There's going to be, you know, it's a it's a huge game in uh, Washington, and he really doesn't know. He's the he's a community leader, uh, just recently become senator. He doesn't know shit. And here's another thing, you know, he's been very like worried lately about coming off like he's changing his mind. So he's promising to not alter, but maybe refine his view on the troops. He's really careful never to say now, oh, I changed my mind, because the Republicans, like they usually do, have started to like this chant, oh, he's a flappy flopper, he's a flip flopper, he's a flopper. You know, anytime somebody changes their fucking mind, let me tell you something. I was in business, owned my own business for 24 years, very successful marketing company. And I can tell you, one of the most powerful tools that a businessman has is to strategically change his mind. And you're a moron if you don't change your mind. So for these idiots to come across, like anytime somebody says, I thought about it, I learned something new, I thought of something else, and therefore I'm changing my mind, if somebody's never going to do that, they're never going to effectively govern. A dust-up over war policy, one of the main issues separating the Illinois senator from his Republican opponent, John McCain, overshadowed Obama's town hall meeting here in uh, Fargo, North Dakota, with veterans to talk about patriotism and his plans to care for them. Everybody wants to know, what's the deal? Why is your name, middle name Hussein? What are you, some fucking terrorist? Why do you uh, not wear the flag pin? There's been so much discussion over why this guy does or doesn't wear the pin. We really have to stop concerning ourselves with questions like that. Republicans pounced on the chance. Let me tell you, you don't get to the kind of position. He's not like an inside guy. I don't know what these people are worried about if they really believe that he's like a, a Manchurian candidate. Uh, for the terrorists, then I d just uh, I don't see that. I don't think so. At best, he's maybe inept, uh, or rather, at worst. Uh, but uh, you know wh whether he's like secretly working for the bad guys this is just absurd. Republicans pounced on the chance to characterize Obama as altering one of his core policies that drove his candidacy. For the sake of political expedience, he denied equally forcefully that he was shifting positions. No, 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 I'm not flopping. I'm not flipping. Now the motherfucker can't even change his mind. Arriving in Fargo, Obama hastily called a news conference to discuss news of a sixth straight month of nationwide job losses. But the questioning turned to Iraq policy and his impending trip there. I'm going to do a thorough ass assessment when I'm there, he said. I'm sure I'll have more information and continue to refine my policy. Duh. What the fuck else could he say? What, I mean, what else would you say? What else would you do? Of course, you go in there, you roll up your sleeves, you see what's what, and that affects your position. What should he say? I'm going to go over there, but I refuse to learn anything, and I refuse to, to see anything new? He left the impression that his talks with the military commanders there could refine his promise to remove U.S. combat troops within 16 months of taking office. Less than four hours later, after the town hall meeting, Obama appeared before reporters for another statement and round of questions to try this again. 
He said, apparently I was not clear enough this morning. He blamed any confusion on the McCain campaign, which he said had primed the pump with the press to suggest that we were changing our policy, which we haven't. And this is just a stupid little game of cat and mouse that the press really needs to get off of. Every time one candidate has something you know, mean to say about the other one, then they run back to the other candidate and they say, the other guy just said you're a pussy. What do you say about that? Because they're just desperate to get fucking shit to fill their, you know, nightly news. It's not news. It's just they're manufacturing news. When you go and tell somebody something he doesn't know, then ask him how he feels about it. That's not news, folks. That's just tabloid journalism. I've said throughout this campaign that this war was ill-conceived, that it was a strategic blunder, that it needs to come to an end, he said. I've also said that I would be deliberate and careful about how we get out. That position has not changed. I'm not searching for maneuvering room with respect to that position. He promised to summon the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, I fucking hate these people. They ruined the word liberal. When I grew up, the word liberal was, you know, it meant like, you know, hey, come on, keep an open mind. I'm going to, I'm going to, let's do like a few tabs of acid and I'm going to tell you <laughs> my, my plan for the, you know, water powered car. Keep an open mind. Be liberal. Be open to it. And they fucking ruined that word. Every time you, like, say something, you know, like, I want to allow abortion, liberal. He's just a liberal. And they just, it's just like when I was a kid, they used to use the word Jew as if it were a bad word. I mean, I you know, I grew up in a Jewish home. All the food was Jewish. The word Jew was a nice, friendly word to me. When we were having Jewish food, it was, like, my favorite food. But then people would say, oh, he's a Jew. Jew. Oh, that one, that Jew. And then, you know, like as I <laughs> heard that a few times, I started thinking to myself, he's not saying that in an overly admiring way. He said that uh, when he talked about uh, earlier about refining his policy after talking with commanders in Iraq, he was referring not to the six-month timeline, but to how many troops may need to remain in Iraq to train the local army and police and what true presence may be needed to be sure Al-Qaeda doesn't reestablish a foothold there. Because the seven years that they've had to train them apparently hasn't done shit. Because they're not training them. Because the training is also another Bush lie. It's all crap. They tell you that we'll get out of there when we've trained them. And at the same breath, they're building the world's largest army base in the history of mankind for a thousand-year reign. Because these people are not acting as um, as clerks for the uh, to further the interest of the United States. They're acting in their own best interests as lunatics, as uh, uh, imperialists, and uh, taking over foreign countries and planting their flag there, and rationalizing that history will vindicate them. Uh, sure, uh, we go, uh, you know, uh, we broke some international laws. Sure, we, we, uh, lost, Americans lost, uh, you know, some, some rights. But, uh, you know, uh, that, you know, isn't that, you can't make an omelet without cracking a few eggs. Isn't that how our founding fathers did it when they came and, you know, gave the Indians all fucking, uh, blankets with, uh, smallpox in it? That's all we're doing. It's the modern version of the blankets with the smallpox. Nobody blames them. 
do they? I will bring our troops out at a pace of one or two brigades a month, which would mean the United States would be totally out of Iraq in 16 months. That's what I intend to do as president of the United States. But later in the session, he said it is possible that the 16-month timeline could slip if the pace of withdrawal needs to be slowed some months to ensure troop safety. I've always said I would always reserve the right to do what's best. There you go. What else could you fucking ask for? Meanwhile, the Pentagon has extended the tour of 2,200 Marines in Afghanistan after insisting for months that the unit would come home on time, lying through their fucking teeth. The 24th Marine Expeditionary Unit, which is doing combat operations in the volatile south, will stay an extra 30 days and come home in early November rather than October. Military leaders as recently as yesterday stressed the need for additional troops in Afghanistan. Admiral Mike Mullen, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has often praised the work of the 24th MEU in fighting Taliban militants in Helmand Province. Defense Secretary Robert Gates, however, has repeatedly said he did not intend to extend or replace the U.S. Marines in Afghanistan, calling their deployment there an extraordinary one-time effort to help tamp down the increasing violence in the South. Asking about the possibility of an extension in early May, Gates said he would be loath to do that. He added that no one suggested even the possibility of extending the rotation. Lapin said uh, today the commanders in Afghanistan asked that the Marines stay longer. Pentagon Press Secretary Jeff Morrell said the longer tours do not open the door to extension beyond the 30 days, (laughs) nor the possibility of replacing them with other U.S. troops. And we should believe that because why? Because every fucking word they've ever said is a crock of shit. And now the commanders there are saying they need 7,000 more troops. And, of course, they say that because they're soldiers. They say what they're told to say. Their president says, whine to the press that we need more soldiers, and then we'll reluctantly make those people stay even longer, even though we said they wouldn't, and even though they said after we extended it that we wouldn't extend it. We'll just do it. Because what are they going to fucking do? Fire us? Because history will vindicate us. Because we can do any fucking thing we want. Because our word means nothing. Because we know we're lying. They know we're lying. We know that they know we're lying. They know that we know that they know we're lying. It's fine. What are they going to do? That's the bully mentality. That's the thug mentality that uh, we see in these kind of people. They know what they're doing is wrong. They just don't give a fuck. Because they can get away with it. Because who's going to stop me? This is like the the bully in fifth grade in the schoolyard. This was, you know, that kind of attitude. These are the people that make believe they give a fuck about these soldiers. Meanwhile, not a single word, unfortunately, in this AP release about, you know, the the rate of suicide is the highest in the history of the armed forces. Uh, the rate of um, AWOL, people, you know, soldiers going AWOL is the highest. The rate of uh, mental illness, not, not a word in this story about all the uh, uh, horrible conditions of the medical facilities of, the, of these people who are having to struggle and fight uh, to get uh, medical assistance and aid for, um, you know, missing limbs. And it's just fucking heart wrenching. And uh, unfortunately, the press is really doing a lousy job at reporting that shit. 
Meanwhile, Republican presidential candidate John McCain said today that a shakeup in the leadership of his campaign was part of a natural evolution as the organization becomes more national in scope. So they fired and hired a bunch of people over at the McCain um, you know, campaign, and we should give a shit because why? Uh, the Why does the news report on uh, what's going on internally in a campaign? It's like a little corporation. It's like a little city. It employs thousands. Uh, it generates uh, press releases on a daily basis. So, But why do we give a fuck? We, we, we see these stories. I mean, unless you're in the political business, why do you care that, uh, you know, so-and-so is being fired and so-and-so is being hired? Other than to know that things can't be going good, they don't fire people and hire new people when things are going well. And we know that all these like ridiculous pap statements they release, our campaign continues to grow and the responsibilities are expanding. Mr. Schmidt is taking over some increased responsibilities. Like, what the fuck? Like, are we all like retards? <laughs> the, 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 the guy is leaving to spend more time with his family. How many fucking times do they tell us that bullshit? That's what they always tell you when they fire somebody. I have to spend more time with I'm in the middle of a presidential campaign. <laughs> but I need to, I've been neglecting my dog. <sighs> hey, you tuned into the ravings of a clown on Just Radio this Thursday, July the 3rd, the year of our Lord, 2008. Lulu! The Jester Jekyll in the Jester Radio chat room. Why not stop by and say hi? 646-502-8600. Gets you live on the air with your old pal, the Jester, Deep Blue Something. Please don't fuck with that dial. You'll say we've got nothing in common. No common ground to start from. And we're falling apart. You'll say between us Our lines have come between us Still I know you just don't care And I said What about Breakfast to Tiffany She said I think I Remember the film And as I recall I think We both kind of liked it And I 
What about Breakfast at Tiffany's? What about it? It was a good movie. It was a great movie. Deep Blue Something on Jester Radio. Hey, uh, hanging in the Jester Radio chat room, why not stop by and uh, say hi. An internal State Department investigative report. By the way, you're tuned into the Rovings of Acclaim this Thursday, July the 3rd. An internal State Department investigative report. This is your internal State Department if you're an American. So listen up here. An internal report suggests that employees may have been snooping on the passport records of celebrities far more than previously disclosed. Now, we've been reporting for the past you know, several months that people, apparently, of course, these um, databases, government databases, have audit trails. They uh, keep a record of who's looking at what data when, as it should. And um, apparently people have been looking at per- people's personal data. Um, if they're celebrities, everybody's got a passport. And they just browse through their fucking details. A report from the Department Inspector General released today said that a survey of records of 150 notable politicians, athletes, and entertainers found that 127 of them, they just picked 150. Okay, let's pick the 150 most famous people. George Clooney. Bob Dylan, 127 of them, 85%, have been accessed 4,148 times in the six years between September of 2002 and March of 2008. Of the 150 files, nine had been viewed more than 101 times. According to the report, 33 others had been viewed more than 26 times, and 85 had been looked at at least once. The report did not say if the files had been viewed for legitimate reasons, but it noted that the number appears to be excessive. And by the way, as a programmer, to add a trap that would raise a red flag when somebody's account is viewed more than X number of times is about 10 minutes of coding. It added that it could not yet determine if that 85% hit rate is inordinately high. However, officials... (laughs) I'll tell you, man, no one's looking at my passport 4,148 times. That's for shit sure. However, officials said the number of times that the files were viewed was highly suspicious and probably a sign of inappropriate peeking at the records, which contain names, social security numbers, and passport numbers. They said that an investigation is underway to determine if any wrongdoing occurred and that any employees found to have violated privacy policies would be disciplined. And by the way, strap yourself in because a government (laughs) investigation, we could be here a while. If it was my company, I'd say everybody get in this room, lock that door, and no one's getting out until we figured out who saw what. Because it would take like 10 minutes. You pull out the records, you have the people sitting there, and you fucking go, you start rifling through the shit. And you go, okay, Frank, where's Frank, okay? It says here that you looked at Donna Summers' passport information last week. What's up with that? And you'd get to the fucking bottom of it. And then when you find out which ones are lying, you call in the cops, and you have them fucking hauled away like yesterday's garbage. Well, what's with the investigation? We're reviewing the circumstances under which people looked at these records, and we will take action, said Michael Kirby, a senior official with the State Department's Bureau of Consular Affairs, which handles passports. If it's inappropriate access, we will take appropriate measures. So, And since the fucking 
fish stinks from the head down. And since they see that their executive is a lazy, lying sack of shit that does nothing, he's the guy that you know got up on September 12th and said, we'll smoke him out, we'll smoke him. And then, you know, here we are seven years later, and there's no smoke. The only smoke is the smoke he's blowing up our ass. But Bin Laden is fucking, then he told us he's irrelevant, then he told us he's got 45 minutes left to live with the bad kidney. Meanwhile, he's just fucking, he's turning out more tapes than uh, 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 R. Kirby. He's got more videos out than R. Kirby does. I'll work on that one. Uh, we're reviewing the circumstances. Five contract passport workers have already been fired for their role in snooping at the passports of presidential candidates John McCain, Barack Obama, and Hillary Clinton. Breaches of their records became public back in March and prompted this whole uh, shindoodle. Shortly afterwards, and we see how far we've gotten from March to June. Shortly afterwards, officials told Jester Radio that a preliminary review had told uh, found that the State Department workers viewed passport records for high-profile Americans, including uh, Anna Nicole Smith. <laughs> and they were disappointed to learn that it didn't passport doesn't contain your measurements. Although uh, today's report did not conclude that any files had been improperly viewed or any laws broken, it said investigators found numerous problems in the system and that it's supposed to, to protect the confidentiality of passport records, the inspector general found many control weaknesses, including a general lack of policies, procedures, guidance, and training relating to the prevention and detection of unauthorized access to passport and applicant information and the subsequent response and disciplinary process with a potential unauthorized access is substantiated, he said. And of course they don't train them. Of course there are weaknesses because this is the culture there. This is the way it works in your government, people. They've hired the lowest, filthiest, most useless, stupid dregs of society, and they form like a little nest inside the government. And once one of them finds out that you can peek at the celebrities' passport records, then they all did it every day. You can rest assured that it was a mass conspiracy. They taught you how to do it the day you got there, not taught you not to do it. Now, there is no training other than how to how to peek at celebrities' passport records. That's the training they give you. So they found weaknesses and lack of policies. That's code for we found the place was running amok, that these people were drunk with power, and that although they were paid $27,000 a year, they were peeking at celebrities' passports. So that gave them fucking power. That's the way your government works. 75 cents on the dollar, right down the toilet. A Texas man who, spoke more, who spent more than 15 years in prison after being wrongly convicted of kidnapping and robbery raised both arms skyward and collapsed in his mother's embrace today after being told that he was a free man. Patrick Waller's sobs were the only sound at a crowded hearing attended by four other inmates also exonerated by DNA. It's all right, honey. Patricia Cunningham told her son, it's over, you're out of here, you're going home. Waller had been behind bars since 1992. The guy hasn't even seen the internet. He hasn't seen the Paris Hilton tape. He, he was behind bars for 1992 for aggravated robbery and aggravated kidnapping stemming from the abduction of a Dallas couple. He was proved innocent by DNA testing late last year. I feel vindicated, he said. He's 38 years old now. I feel thankful. Most of all, I feel blessed. 
Who wouldn't? God was clearly on this man's side for letting him sit in prison for 15 years for a crime he didn't commit. His release had been all but certain since last week when the Dallas County Prosecutor's Office announced that DNA evidence had cleared Waller and matched the profile of someone else. That suspect identified his accomplice, and both men subsequently confessed in front of a grand jury, prosecutors said. Neither man is in prison, although one is on parole. They won't face criminal charges because the statute of limitations has expired. Waller is the 19th man in Dallas County since 2001, shown by DNA evidence to be innocent of the crime for which he is convicted. That's more than any county in the nation. According to the Innocence Project in New York, a legal center specializing in wrongful conviction cases. Dallas is railroad central, folks. If you are a defendant in a criminal case in the city of Dallas, Texas, you are guilty. With very rare exception. And, of course, the state of Texas is the winner in the murder campaign as well. They kill more of their prisoners than any other prison system. So put both together. Railroad capital of the world, except for maybe Malaysia, and uh, the kill more people. So we can extrapolate from that by using simple ninth-grade algebra that a percentage of the people that are put to death in Texas are innocent. And, you know, you could take away a lot of things from people. You could take away their freedom. You could take away their rights. But the one thing you could take away from somebody that you can never give back is their life. And that's one of the best arguments against the death penalty. Forget about the fact that if we're good men of, uh, you know, noble men of goodwill, then our values include not, you know, respecting the right of someone else's life and not taking that away. Um, but barring that, uh, even above that, is the simple reality that um, if you take one person's life by mistake, it, doesn't, it simply can't be worth uh, taking all the bad people's lives. I don't see that as a viable percentage. Oh, don't worry. Only very few innocent people are put to death on death row. Wow, total statistic not you know, good enough for me. Very few is not good enough. Listen to this story. Um, this blew me away. You know, uh, a lot of you know that my brother died when he was 26 years old from SIDS, from sudden death syndrome. Um, same as sudden infant death syndrome. We've known about this for years where kids just simply cack in the middle of the night uh, for no known reason. You know, some people have associated it with sleep apnea and putting kids on their side or their back or choking to death. Um, but check this story out. Scientists have new evidence that the brain chemical best known for regulating mood also plays a role in the mystifying killer of seemingly healthy babies, sudden infant death syndrome. By the way, my brother was 26 years old at the time, so they leave out the eye, but it's the same exact diagnosis, sudden death syndrome. It's the same thing. Everything just shuts down. And what they're thinking now is that a certain number of days, weeks, or months after you're born, um, you start producing um, this chemical, which is um, for you know regulating mood. And in some rare cases, this chemical tr triggers uh, sudden death syndrome. Autopsied brain tissue from SIDS babies first raised suspicion that an imbalance in serotonin might be uh, what behind what uh, was once called crib death. 
but specialists couldn't figure out how that defect could kill. Now researchers in Italy have engineered mice born with serotonin that goes haywire and found the brain abnormality is enough to spur sudden death in ways that mesh with other clues from human babies. Moreover, the work suggests it might one day be possible to test newborns for their risk of SIDS. For now, even an animal experiment can offer a message for devastated families and should provide them with some sense of comfort that there was nothing they could have done to prevent it, said Marion Willinger, a SIDS specialist at the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, who wasn't part of the study. Uh, it is a real disease, she said. The work was published in uh, Friday's edition of the journal Science. SIDS is the sudden death of an otherwise healthy infant anywhere between ages one month and one year that can't be contributed to any other cause. It kills more than 2,000 U.S. infants each year and is the leading killer of babies after the newborn period. Babies should always be placed to sleep on their backs as the risk of SIDS increases greatly when they sleep on their stomachs. Parents are urged not to allow anyone to smoke around their baby or to let their babies get too warm when they sleep. But beyond those risk factors, doctors have little advice. In 2006, Dr. Hannah Kinney of Children's Hospital Boston compared brain tissue from 31 SIDS babies and 10 infants who died of other causes. The SIDS babies had abnormalities in their brainstem that led to imbalances in serotonin, a neurotransmitter, a chemical that helps brain cells communicate. Low serotonin famously plays a role in depression, Little known to laymen is uh, that it also helps regulate some of the body's most basic functions like breathing, heart rate, body temperature, and arousal from sleep. So how do you like that? So apparently they've uh, genetically engineered these mice that they can literally switch on and off the serotonin regulating sensor and they can see the ones um, you know, that they switch on you know, or, or, you know, die from SIDS in a couple of months from these, uh, you know, the, the brain synapses going haywire. Funky shit, huh? Hey, you're listening to the Roovings of Acclaim this uh, Thursday, July the 2nd, uh, 3rd. Which one is it? July the 3rd, the year of our Lord, 2008. And here's the story of Bobby Joe and Billy Sue, two young lovers who had nothing better to do. This here's the story about Billy Joe and Bobby Sue, two young lovers with nothing better to do. They sit around the house, get high and watch them too. And here's what happened when they decided to cut Ooh. 
Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane. Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues in the middle of the pouring rain. WC handy, won't you look down over me? Yeah, I got a first class ticket, but I'm as blue as a boy can be. Feet ten feet off a beam, walking in Memphis. But do I really feel the way I feel? Saw the ghost of Elvis on Union Avenue. Followed him up to the gates of Graceland, and I watched him walk right through. Now security they did not see him. They just hover around this tomb. But there's a pretty little thing waiting for the king down in the jungle room. When I was walking in Memphis, I was walking with my feet ten feet off a beam. Walking in Memphis.
Marcona and Jester Radio, walking in Memphis. A little gospel for you. Steve Miller Band started that set. Take the money and run. You're tuned into the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio. This Thursday, July the 3rd, sad day in the uh, Jester family. I had to call my old man who's 88 years old. So he's got like an hour and 45 minutes. He's what the doctors describe as one foot in the grave and the other foot on a banana peel. And don't get me wrong, I love my father dearly. I joke, but I I joke, I kid with love. But uh, he lost an old friend. He's, of course, uh, at 88, used to doing that today. As a child, I grew up um, in the unusual circumstances that my father... Uh, was a mostly a salesman, although he ultimately became an executive and a designer. But um, he started out as a salesman, and his style of sales was to have everybody over to the house. And the people that he sold, or his clients, many of them were famous uh, among the the people my age, like Soupy Sales and. Um, uh, you know, Shari Lewis and those kinds of people. So they were frequent visitors to the house, but none of them uh, brought the magic with them like uh, Uncle Bozo, Larry Harmon, who was not the original Bozo ever, but he was the one that we grew up with in New York City when I was a kid back in the 50s and 60s. And he's certainly the Bozo that the people of my generation from the Northeast have come to think of. There's like 200 Bozos. But he turned Bozo into a business, um, and uh, my dad worked very closely with him, um, designing a lot of the crap that he um, that uh, had the Bozo. And Bozo also owned uh, some other characters, like he owned um, the uh, Laurel and Hardy characters, which uh, my dad's company also um, exploited. And when he came over the house, man, he came dressed like a regular guy. You know, he was sort of like very tall and thin, extremely muscular, uh, and kind of, you know, sort of physical and scary dude. But he would just, man, he would just never fail to say, you know, whoa, Nelly, and, you know, all these cool things. If you ask him to, he just, you would think that Bozo the Clown would just uh, get sick of that. And he just never seemed to. And he was very warm and sweet. He always uh, remembered, you know, birthdays and holidays. And he always came over for um, whatever bar mitzvahs and parties and everything. And he was really just a delightful, wonderful, sweet man. And he was um, the real Bozo the Clown as far as I'm concerned. He passed away today. He was 83 years young. Larry Harmon, who turned the character Bozo the Clown into a show business staple that delighted children for more than 50 years, died today of congestive heart failure at 53. His publicist, Jerry Digney, told Jester Radio he died at home. Although not the original Bozo, Harmon portrayed the popular clown in countless appearances, and as an entrepreneur, he licensed the character to others, particularly dozens of television stations across the country. The stations, in turn hired local actors to be their local bozos. You might say, in a way, I was cloning Bozo the Clown before anybody else out there got around to cloning DNA, he told uh, the AP back in 96 in an interview. Bozo is a combination of the wonderful wisdom of the adult and the childlike ways in all of us, he said. Pinto Kolvig, who also provided the voice for Walt Disney's Goofy, originated Bozo the Clown when Capitol Records introduced a series of children's records in 1946. Harmer, uh, rather Harmon, 
would later meet his alter ego while answering a casting call to make personal appearances as a clown to promote this record. So he was not the original guy on the record, but he really sort of uh, became uh, the character. He um, he went around um, um, promoting the record as Bozo the Clown. He got the job and eventually bought the rights to Bozo along the way. He embellished Bozo's distinctive look, the orange tufted hair, the bulbous nose, the outlandish red, white, and blue costume. I felt if I plant my size 83 AAA shoes on this planet, people would never be able to forget those footprints, he said. Susan Harmon, his wife of 29 years, indicated Harmon was the perfect fit for Bozo. He was the most optimistic man I ever met. He always saw the bright side. He always had something good to say about everybody. He was the love of my life, she said today. The business combining animation, licensing of the character, personal appearances made millions as Harmon trained more than 200 bozos over the years to represent him in local markets. I'm looking for that sparkle in the eyes, that emotion, feeling, directness, warmth that's so important, he said, of his criteria for becoming a bozo. The Chicago version of Bozo ran on WGN-TV in Chicago for 40 years, was seen in many other cities after cable TV transformed WGN into a superstation. Bozo who was played in Chicago for many years, of course, but by Bob Bell, was so popular that the waiting list for tickets for his TV show eventually stretched to a decade, 10 years, prompting the station to stop taking reservations for 10 years. On the day in 1990 when WGN started taking reservations again, it took five hours to book the show for five more years. Phone company reported more than 27 million phone call attempts had been made. By the time that the show bowed out to Chicago in 2001. It was the last locally produced version in the country of Bozo the Clown. Harmon said at the time that he hoped to develop a new cable or network show as well as a Bozo feature film. Unfortunately, he never got around to that. Although, uh, believe me, the uh, trademark and the business will last for another 52 years, I'm sure, at the very least. Um, it's just um, a very... Um, Sad day in the Jester household. Larry Harmon dead at uh, 88. Federal prosecutors have filed kidnapping charges that carry the death penalty against a Vermont man whose 12-year-old niece was found dead near his home. We've, re we've been reporting on this story for the past couple of weeks. Authorities accused Michael Jacques, 42, of carefully orchestrating events and emails to make it appear that Brooke Bennett had gone on June 25th to see someone she had met online, according to an affidavit accompanying the charges. This guy went on her, my page, or my space page, rather, and put some shit in as her. He got her password, and he put in some shit that she was going to see some other guy to throw the throw the fucking suspicion off of him. But these smart coppers, what they did was they said, they went to MySpace and they said, show us the last time that changes were made to this page and show us what IP address those changes came from. And then they got the IP address, then they go and find the fucking company and they say, give me the name of the guy that owns this IP address and they say, it's the guy. Good try. Citing statements from another underage girl, prosecutors claim that Jock tricked Brooke into thinking that she was going to a party and instead took her to his home to initiate her into a child sex ring. Michael DeSautels, the federal 
public defender representing Jacques did not return calls today. Emails quoted an affidavit released uh, today accused Jacques of coercing or enlisting a second girl to participate. The girl said that she would help. Uh, he's charged under a federal law that provides for the death penalty in a kidnapping result in a child's death, of course, uh, very commonly referred to as the um, Lindbergh Law, uh, because there was no death penalty for kidnappers um, when Charles Lindbergh's kid was kidnapped. Christy Brinkley testified at her divorce trial today that the day she learned her husband was having an affair with a teenager was the day my life as I knew it had vanished. Folks, we got to get away. We have the weirdest ass fucking culture. And by the way, let me tell you something. This is all Christian crapola. This is where we get this shit. We're supposed to feel guilty for not loving our mate for life. Nobody can love anybody every minute of every day. And people change their feelings about shit all the time. It's not fair to say to somebody, you're a bad person because you stopped loving me. If somebody fucking went out and cheated on me, it's not about me. It's about them. It's their fucking problem. I may have wanted uh, them to want me, but if they don't, that's fine. So, But instead, we live in this society where we catch our husband or wife with somebody else and we go, how dare they? How dare they have sex with somebody else after they promised me? And then we go act outraged and tell our friends. And our friends cluck their tongues and go, oh, he's a filthy pig. Filthy pig? What? Why does not being in love with somebody anymore, why does fucking somebody else anymore uh, uh, make you a pig? And by the way, if I'm a pig, do you want to be with me? Why upset yourself? Be grateful that I'm a pig and you're out of my life. Uh, you know what? Nothing good has ever come of somebody, you know, uh, saying, you know, bad shit or people treating each other in a, you know, grotesquely disrespectful way. If I'm lying to you and having sex with you behind your back, then surely you're moral code includes not being with somebody who's a lying sack of shit and not being with somebody who doesn't want to be with you. So move on. Feelings change all the time. Relationships change all the time. If you're quote unquote stuck in a relationship, this is just a prison you've manufactured in your own head. Nobody's stuck in anything. You don't even have to take your next breath if you don't want to. And don't give me this horse shit about how you got kids to feed and responsibilities and you're an American, damn it, and you don't have the option to te not take your next breath. Of course you do. You choose not to because that's your ethics, and that's great. But that doesn't mean you have no option to do it. And it's certainly not my fault if I don't go along with it because it's such a big sacrifice for you. That doesn't obligate me in any way. So it's sad when relationships break up. And I'm telling you, it must be the season of the witch because I'm seeing it like all around me. All my buds are going their separate ways with their um, partners. And it's a kind of weird um, perspective for me because 
it seems like really for the first time in my life, I see much more, much less have an agenda um, than to, you know, sort of codify my own situation. Because I really don't have a situation. I'm not in a relationship for the first time since I'm 11. I'm, and I'm not uh, having sex with anybody for almost a year or maybe over a year. Great Godfrey. And I'm not in any way uh, like um, in a panic about it. I'm very fucking chill about it, in fact. So, like uh, Colin Haig said, I'm not saying I may not have seen a touch of love. So I may have seen a touch of love over that past year, but no, nothing even close to a relationship, and nothing even close to nothing. Ain't worth nothing. And so, as a result, uh, people are telling me their problems, and I'm a lot less likely to give advice like, dude, call her, dude, say this, dude, do this. Instead, I'm much like, more like, wow, that's, that's got to hurt. I'm so sorry. That sucks. I know what that's like. And that's about all I got. And I'm, and I'm good with that, and I think uh, it's good with uh, folks. My buddy Richie, he's been fucking this uh, keyboard player. I'm not allowed to say her name on the air. But she's somebody, she's very hot, even for an older broad, and she's somebody famous, or at least used to be. Uh, you'd probably recognize uh, the um, her name. And they're breaking up. Apparently they've been breaking up for a week now, back and forth. They do it by, uh, they're long distance for long periods in their relationship, so they've been doing it by MSN Messenger. <laughs> With the video, though. With the video. So they've been doing, they've been breaking up via MSN Messenger. And um, so that's uh, Richie in Brooklyn. And then, and then uh, um, who else? Oh, yeah, Bob the Engineer is breaking up with uh, his girlfriend, Tiffany, who we played the Breakfast at Tiffany's for. But they do that once a week. And uh, so it's been sort of like this there's been a, a couple of other people and i'm you know and they're all like you know come you know whining to me and you know telling me i don't mean whining you're not whining <laughs> seriously it's not whining uh it's more like moaning uh but they all you know say oh man it's you know sucks to be me and um so i don't know what's up with that Um, but I do sort of have this sense, you know, um, I used the phrase season of the witch before. There is a sort of sense sometimes that things kind of happen um, in sequence. And especially kind of sad things. They sort of um, um, are like dominoes in a way. And there's people breaking up and uh, Uncle Bozo died. And it's just a lot, a lot of sad shit happening. So, but just so you know, I'm doing remarkably well. So, don't worry. I'm doing very well. I almost cut my hair. Oh, wow. Happened just the other day. But don't worry. It's okay. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young on JR. Please don't fuck with that dial. It gets good. Right now. Almost 
cut my hair It happened just the other day It's getting kind of long I could have said it wasn't in my way
Where's that silhouette I'm trying to trace? Who's putting sponge in the bells I once rung? And taking my gypsy before she's begun To shake in the meaning of what's in my mind Before I can take home what's rightfully mine Joining in a listening and talking in rhymes Stopping the feeling to wait for the time Who's saying Thing. Who's trying to tune all the bells that he rings? And who's in the corner and down on the floor with pencil and paper just saying baby that don't mean a thing nowadays clancy can't even sing buffalo springfield on just radio the uh, interstitial noise there goes out to sadie in uh, the bronx crosby stills i mean uh, manhattanville where is it crosby stills nash and young almost cut my hair started that set you've been listening to the rovings of a clown this thursday july the third the year of our Lord, 2008. Police in southeast Missouri town of Poplar Bluff are looking for the gunman who robbed a man on Monday night then gave him a hug before fleeing. The victim, Heath Chandler, 31, of Naylor, told police he was in the parking lot of a Walmart store when a man approached him and put a semi-automatic gun to his stomach. 
you imagine? The assailant demanded money, so Chandler gave him the 25 bucks he had. The man then took Chandler to a Jeep Cherokee driven by a woman. There, he gave the victim a hug before fleeing in the Cherokee. Detectives are studying Walmart videotape as part of the search for the suspect. One of the fireworks bursting above the city of Indianapolis this year will contain a bit of cremated remains. A fitting tribute, organizers say, to the man who ran the annual event for 40 years. Meredith Smith died in February at age 74. About a half teaspoon of his ashes will be in a fireworks shell that will create a white burst in the sky for the finale of the show set for Thursday night. Wow. Can't think of a better way, said family friend Kevin Moss. He also will be memorialized through hundreds of T-shirts referring to the tribute as the last shot. Smith, a school maintenance worker, was a trained pyrotechnician. His widow, Charlotte, said that they started the fireworks show as a community service and sometimes paid for it themselves. Meredith felt uh, like the people in this area didn't get the opportunities that other people got, and so he wanted to give them this opportunity. She said the, re- the release of the ashes shouldn't harm public health, said John Arholt of the Health and Hospital Corp. of Marion County. I think that... Whatever a family can do to remember their loved one is great, he said. The fireworks will be shot over the White River. According to Indiana law, cremated remains may be disposed of on the property of a consenting owner, uninhabited public land, or in a waterway. It's just ashes. There really, There's not a lot of safer things out there. A Duluth man is under arrest after he called police on a cell phone from a pur- purse that he had just stolen. Police arrested the 29-year-old man. Yesterday, they say he approached a woman at a pool hall shortly after midnight, asked for a butt, then grabbed the purse as she was opening it and ran the fuck off. Less than 90 minutes later, the suspect called police on the woman's cell phone to say that he had been jumped. Police Sergeant Don Bozo said uh, that it appeared to be uh, the, to the arresting officer that the man had not been jumped, but rather was drunk and needed a ride home. The woman identified the suspect as the person who stole her purse. The man's facing theft charges in St. Louis County, Minnesota. Can you imagine? This guy, this is how he gets a ride home from the cops. He calls up the cops. He goes, I know what I'll do. I'll call the coppers, and I'll say I was jumped. See? I mean, I'm a filthy pig anyway. I've fallen down so many times, it may as well look like I was uh, jumped. And um, they'll just come and give me a ride home because that's what the cops do, after all, when you get jumped, is they provide free taxi services. Isn't that what your taxpayer dollars pay for, whether you actually pay taxes or not? Hey, you've been listening to the Roovings of Acclaim this Thursday, July the 3rd. You know, the love that I have known has always been the most destructive kind. Well, here's my story. It seems the love I've known. Has always been the most destructive kind. I guess that's why now I feel so old before my time. Yesterday, when I was young, the taste of life was sweet as rain upon my tongue. I teased at life as if it were a foolish game. The way the evening blues make. A candle flame The thousand dreams I dreamed The splendid things I planned 
I always built to last on and shifting sail. I live by night and shun the naked light of day. And only now I see the years ran away. Yesterday, when I was young, so many happy songs were waiting to be sung. So many wild pleasures they installed for me. And so much pain my dazzled eyes refused to see. I ran so fast the time, and youth at last ran out. I never stopped to think what life was all about. And every conversation I can now recall concerned itself with me. Nothing else at all. Yesterday, the moon was blue. Every crazy day brought something new to do. I used my magic age as if it were a wand, and never saw the worst and the emptiness beyond. The game of love I played with arrogance and pride, and every flame I knew too quickly, quickly died. The friends I made all seemed somehow. Drift away, and only I am left on stage to end the play. There are so many songs in me that won't be sung. I feel the bitter taste of tears upon my tongue. The time has come for me to pay for yesterday when I was young.
songs to play Then you listen to the music And you like to sing along You want to get the meaning Out of each and every song Then you find yourself a message And some words to call your own And take them home That's the uh, bread on Jester Radio and the Guitar Man. Ren and Stimpy, of course, before that. Roy Clark started that set. Great story behind that song. It was originally, you know, written by, you know, Charles Aznavour in in French. And he was, you know, sort of a very mature French uh, accent. And it was translated by, you know, Herbert Kurtzmer in, in the 60s. And they wanted, and these, you know, they wrote a song about it uh, to this poem. And the executive said, let's get somebody, you know, to sing it. And they said, let's, uh, okay, who's young and new and fresh? And, the, and they said, well, uh, but um, it's a song sung from the perspective of some very old person. <laughs> it doesn't really make sense to have, like, a young person sing it. So instead, they... They insisted on having somebody young sing it, so they sort of stuck this uh, prologue on the beginning of it, uh, where Roy Clark says, It seems the love I've known has always been the most destructive kind. I guess that's why now I feel so old before my time. So that sort of acts as an excuse for why he's pining away about this lifetime of um, you know lost opportunities. I ran so fast that Time and youth at last ran out. I never stopped to think what life was all about. Every conversation I can now recall concerned itself with me and nothing else. 
at all. Yesterday, the moon was blue, and every crazy day brought something new to do. I used my magic age as if it were a wand and never saw the worst and the emptiness beyond. The game of love I played with arrogance and pride and every flame I lit too quickly, quickly died. The friends I made all seemed somehow to drift away and only I am left on stage to end the play. There are so many songs in me that won't be song sung. I feel the bitter taste of tears upon my tongue. The time has come for me to pay for yesterday when I was young. And it's such a regretful and remorseful song. I imagine anybody of age, uh, you know, over 40 probably has felt all those things, you know, at some time or another. Everybody feels and thinks everything. Of course, uh, your thoughts don't define you. That doesn't mean you obsess about it, but and um, uh, um, awesomely, um, uh, Mickey Mantle had had loved this song when he was a kid, and uh, he felt his whole life he had wanted uh, Roy Clark to sing that song at his funeral. And when the Mick uh, passed in '95, sure enough, Roy Clark uh, sang that song at his funeral. Hey, you're tuned into the ravings of a clown on Jester Radio this Thursday, July the third. The year of our Lord, 2008. A uh, Looking for work in all the wrong places. That's what happened to job seekers who dialed a phone number listed on the state's Family Health Administration website for Maryland, which actually was a phone number for women looking for sex. D- don't worry, we'll give you the number at the end of the story. The number for the Maryland Job Service hotline was listed incorrectly on the state website as well as in the Verizon Yellow Pages and the other websites, state officials say they are aware of the problem and they're working to correct it. They're trying to get the, the, the women selling sex to give up the number. The correct number to call is one four one zero seven six seven two one four eight. Not, no, I'm just kidding. We, we can't give you the not. Like many Americans, Kent Couch plans to sell uh, settle into a lawn chair during the 4th of July weekend. Unlike everyone else, his feet will dangle high above the lawn. Couch is set to launch himself skyward on Saturday aboard his lawn chair, which will be attached to 150 giant latex party balloons filled with helium. His goal, to fly more than 300 miles from his gas station in central Oregon to somewhere in Idaho, preferably Boise. <laughs> he knows people there. It'll be his third attempt to fly by the seat of his pants to Idaho. He doesn't wear a seatbelt. The first time, nobody wanted to be involved at all. Coach told Jester Radio in a phone interview yesterday, they were thinking I was a lunatic. I mean, a balloonatic. My friend shunned me. But this time, it's different. He now has a corporate sponsor, a team of volunteers, and his wife, Susan's Blessing. Couch, 48, was inspired to go up, up, and away by the 1982 lawn chair flight over L.A. by truck driver Larry Walters, whose adventures brought him a measure of fame, uh, as well as a $1,500 fine for violating air traffic rules. Coach made his first ascent back in 06, floating for six hours before shooting out a few balloons with his pellet gun to slowly descend. He apparently shot out too many balloons because he had to use his parachute to land. He never found the lawn chair. Last year, he flew 193 miles before running low on helium and landing in a patch of sagebrush. Ow. 
A gust of wind may uh, blew away the chair that time. It was found in May by ranchers checking the fence line on their eastern Oregon property. Couches appeared on ABC's Good Morning America and NBC's Tonight Show with Jay Leno. He's enjoyed his time in the limelight, but said he isn't flying a lawn chair for fame and fortune. Cluster ballooning is inherently risky, but the ride is generally carefree, he said. When you're up there, there's not much stress. There's a little stress on the way down, a few navigational issues you have to deal with, but there's nothing really I can do. But enjoy it. With corporate sponsorship this year, he says he's much better equipped and hopes to cross the Wallowa Mountains in northeastern Oregon and make it to Idaho and beyond. He figures the rig cost about six grand, mostly for the helium. The balloons are tied to a framework attached to a reclining lawn chair. He's using 15-gallon barrels as a water ballast, which he can drain to gain altitude. If I get up to about 1,500 feet, I'll pop a couple of balloons, Couch said. If I get too low, I'll release some water. All the way you go, it's like a seesaw up and down. You can't, you can't feel yourself going up and down. You have to look at your altimeter, of course. Couch will have a finger clip to monitor his oxygen level and his blood, uh, plus a tank of oxygen should he venture too high. He'll have a GPS tracking device attached to the chair and another one in his pocket as a backup. And we'll be able to follow along on his website of his exact location. He'll bring duct tape and zip ties for emergency repairs, extra clothes, blanket to ward off the cold at the higher altitudes. He'll munch on beef jerky, boiled eggs, and chocolate. Mm, you don't want to eat too much, he said. There's no bathrooms up there. If all goes well this year, the lawn chair pilot says he'd like to fly across the English Channel. <laughs> Uh, and even, of course, Australia. I don't mind them thinking I'm nuts, he said. I've done my research, and I'm pretty confident. Well, there you go, man. Cross the English Channel in a lawn chair. Fucking A. See, man, the spirit of adventure is not gone, is it? And uh, I'll tell you a little story um, about a, a, a woman that I knew. She came down Yellow Mountain on a dark, flat, land she'd ride on a pony she named wildfire with a whirlwind by her side on a cold nebraska night here's her story don't fuck with that dial she comes down from yellow mountain on a dark flat land she rides on a pony she named wildfire Night. Oh, they say she died one winter when there came a killing frost. Pony she named Wildfire Busted down its stall In a blizzard he was lost She ran calling Wildfire She ran calling Wildfire 
There came an early snow. Been a hoot owl, ha- hoot owl howling by my window now for six nights in a row. She's coming for me, I know. And on wildfire, we're both gonna go. Michael Martin Murphy, or maybe it's Martin Michael Murphy, on Jester Radio. He was actually on um, Letterman last year doing that tune, Note for Note, <laughs> even with that wacky 70s synthetic cowboy instrument whatever the fuck that is um because letterman had been uh talking about that song for 20 years somehow paul got it hooked up they actually just fucking reproduced they had the whole original band and they just reproduced that single uh note for note it was just ecstasy um and such a sweet strange funky ass tune um want to call your attention if you're in the new york area or if you're from anywhere in the country and you're thinking about going to new york um sad story today inside big apple jazz easy woodsheds jazz club in harlem the band plays but owner gordon palatnik says that there's been plenty of love for the music in his club he's having trouble keeping the doors open easy's woodshed is a day club open for live jazz during the day all day no cover charge Having a place open during the day for free music didn't work as far as bringing in money, but I've also been selling works of jazz, said Palatnik. I've also I've been selling art of people who do jazz-oriented art around the city and CDs of local artists and some all about New York City jazz. That's why after more than a decade as a guy doing jazz tours around the city and keeping up his New York City jazz website, BigAppleJazz.com, Palatnik opened up the club in central Harlem more than two years ago. When I heard that a space was opening there on 7th Avenue between 131st and 132nd Streets, which was always known as The Stroll, um, which was you know where the Lafayette Theater was and Count Basie's Club and uh, the nightclub Connie Lynn, um, Connie's Inn. Uh, he said, I knew it was right. I wanted to change hats for a while and open up a jazz joint where you could see jazz all day long, see it for free, and be right on the street where it happened. Um, it's been a jazz haven for musicians and music lovers, but with little money coming in, Palatnik is currently hosting rent parties. 
Musicians are playing for free, trying to help raise enough money to play the to pay the rent and the mounting bills. It's a great, great idea," said musician Bobby Porcelli. We should have done more of these before. I hope every, everything works out for them so I can continue to be a regular here, added musician Michael Brown. I like this, but it's sad that it's even happening, said a club patron. But Palatnik says he considers this neighborhood a historic jazz district. In fact, rent parties like this have historic roots in the neighborhood. Since the 1920s and 30s, people have been helping themselves stay alive in their apartments by having a piano and having someone like... Uh, James P. Johnson or Fats Waller or Art Tatum played a rent party, said Palatnik. And I thought, well, that fits really well with what I need. I need to pay the rent, too. Palatnik hopes someone with a better business plan can help rescue the club. He wants to keep the music going for as long as he can. In this particular case, he does not want to be part of jazz history. 131st to uh, 7th Avenue between 131 and 132. Uh, up in Harlem, go check out Big Apple Jazz Easy's Woodshed Club, and uh, tell them the Jester sent you. And keep it keep it alive, you know. Stuff a couple of bucks in the jar there. Finally, this evening, call them the short arm of the law police in Dillon, South Carolina, a small ne- town near the North Carolina border. Say a 13-year-old with an interest in law enforcement uh, stole a police cruiser and took it out to do some patrolling twice the boy's mother saw him bring the car home both times but didn't see anything wrong with the joy rides the boy who was charged with larceny and second degree burglary was not identified because of his age he remained in department of juvenile justice custody on wednesday his mother patricia gillespie was charged with contributing to the delinquency of a minor she was released on five thousand dollar bond turner said residents called police sunday to say they've seen they've seen the boy driving a police car he said the boy also took the cruiser the previous Sunday and drove it around before <laughs> returning it to the station. No one noticed that it was missing. The boy apparently watched someone enter a code to get into the apartment. He used it to get in and take the keys to the cruiser. There you go. That's how it's done. Hey, thanks so very much for tuning in. I can see by the old clock on the wall it's time for me to get the fuck out of here. You've been listening to the ravings of a clown. That's me. No. I mean, with your old pal, the Jester, this uh, Thursday, July the 3rd. Thanks so very much for stopping by. Remember, we will meet in that place where darkness never comes. That's my solemn oath to you. Until that time, Hustis, the road is long with many a winding turn that leads us to who knows where. But I'm strong, strong enough to carry him. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Good night. See you tomorrow. The road is long With a many winding tongue That leads us to who knows where
He's my 